Where all my children are the light Born in the sinning But steady striving to do right My people are warriors All we know is to fight Pray They see God in everything I write here On July 12, 2017, the special counsel's office, redacted for a grand jury, Trump Jr., redacted for a grand jury, related to the June 9th meeting and those who attended the June 9th meeting. On July 19, 2017, the president had his follow-up meeting with Lewandowski and then met with reporters for the New York Times. In addition to criticizing Sessions in his Times interview, the president addressed the June 9, 2016 meeting <clears throat> and said he didn't know anything about the meeting at that time. He said he didn't know anything about the meeting at the time. The president added, as I've said, most other people who you know, the, pre- the president added, as I've said, most other people, you know, when they call up and say, by the way, we have information on your opponent. I don't I think most politicians I was just with a lot of people. They said, who wouldn't have taken a meeting like that? Analysis. In analyzing the president's actions regarding the disclosure of information about the June 9th meeting, the following evidence is relevant to the elements of obstruction of justice. In analyzing the president's actions regarding the disclosure of information about the June 9th meeting, the following evidence is relevant to the elements of obstruction of justice. A. Obstructive act. On at least three occasions between June 29, 2017 and July 9, 2017, the president directed Hicks and others not to publicly disclose information about the June 9, 2016 meeting between senior campaign officials and a Russian attorney. On June 29, Hicks warned the president that the emails setting up the June 9 meeting were really bad and the story would be massive when it broke, but the president told her and Kushner to leave it alone. Early on July 8th, after Hicks told the president the New York Times was working on a story about the June 9th meeting, the president directed her not to comment, even though Hicks said that the president usually considered not responding to the press to be the ultimate sin. Later that day, the president rejected Trump Jr.'s draft statement that would have acknowledged that the meeting was with an individual who I was told might have information helpful to the campaign. The president then dictated a statement to Hicks that said the meeting was about Russian adoption, which the president had twice been told was discussed at the meeting. The statement dictated by the president did not mention the offer of derogatory information about Clinton. Each of these efforts by the president involved his communications team and was directed at the press. They would amount to obstructive acts only if the president by taking these actions, sought to withhold information from or mislead congressional investigators or the special counsel. On May 17, 2017, the president's campaign received a document request from SSCI that clearly covered the June 9th meeting and underlying emails, and those documents also plainly would have been relevant to the special counsel's investigation. But the evidence does not establish that the president took steps to prevent the emails or other information about the June 9th meeting from being provided to Congress or the special counsel. The series of discussions in which the president sought to limit access to the emails and prevent their public release occurred in the context of developing a press strategy. The only evidence we have of the president's discussing the production of documents to Congress or the special counsel is the Kushner conversation on June 29, 2017, when Hicks recalled the president acknowledging that Kushner's attorney should provide emails related to the June 9th meeting 
to whomever he needed to give them to. We do not have evidence of what the president discussed with his own liars. Oops. (laughs) Freudian slip with his own lawyers at that time. B. Nexus to an official proceeding. As described above, by the time of the president's attempts to prevent the public release of the emails regarding the June 9th meeting, the existence of a grand jury investigation supervised by the special counsel was public knowledge. And the president had been told that the emails were responsive to congressional inquiries. To satisfy the nexus requirement, however, it would be necessary to show that preventing the release of the emails to the public would have the natural and probable effect of impeding the grand jury proceeding or congressional inquiries. As noted above, the evidence does not establish that the president sought to prevent disclosure of the emails in those official proceedings. C. Intent. The evidence establishes the president's substantial involvement in the communication strategy related to information about his campaign's connection to Russia and his desire to minimize public disclosures about those connections. The president became aware of the emails no later than June 29, 2017, when he discussed them with Hicks and Kushner, and he could have been aware of them as early as June 2, 2017, when lawyers for the Trump organization began interviewing witnesses who participated in the June 9th meeting. The president thereafter repeatedly rejected the advice of Hicks and other staffers to publicly release information about the June 9th meeting. The president expressed concern that multiple people had access to the emails and instructed Hicks that only one lawyer should deal with the matter. And the president dictated a statement to be released by Trump Jr. in response to the first press accounts of the June 9th meeting that said the meeting was about adoption. But as described above, the evidence does not establish that the president intended to prevent the special counsel's office or Congress from obtaining the email setting up the June 9th meeting or other information about that meeting. The statement recorded by Corallo that the emails will never get out can be explained as reflecting a belief that the emails would not be made public if the president's press strategy were followed, even if the emails were provided to Congress and the special counsel. H, the president's further efforts to have the attorney general take over the investigation. Overview. From summer 2017 through 2018, the president attempted to have Attorney General Sessions reverse his refusal, take control of the special counsel's investigation, and order an investigation of Hillary Clinton. Evidence. One, the president again seeks to have Sessions reverse his recusal. After returning Sessions' resignation letter at the end of May 2017, but before the president's July 19th, 2017 New York Times interview in which he publicly criticized Sessions for recusing from the Russia investigation, the president took additional steps to have Sessions reverse his recusal. In particular, at some point after the May 17, 2017 appointment of the special counsel, Sessions recalled the president called him at home and asked if Sessions would unrecuse himself. According to Sessions, the president asked him to reverse his recusal so that Sessions could direct the Department of Justice to investigate and prosecute Hillary Clinton. And the gist of the conversation was that the president wanted Sessions to unrecuse from all of it, including the special counsel's Russia investigation. Sessions listened, but did not respond, and he did not reverse his recusal in order to 
or order an investigation of Clinton. In early July 2017, the president asked Staff Secretary Rob Porter what he thought of the Associate Attorney General Rachel Brand. Porter recalled that the president asked him if Brand was good, tough, and on the team. The president also asked if Porter thought Brand was interested in being responsible for the special counsel's investigation and whether she would want to be attorney general one day. Because Porter knew Brand, the president asked him to sound to sound her out about taking responsibility for the investigation and being attorney general. Contemporaneous notes taken by Porter show that the president told Porter to keep in touch with your friend in reference to Brand. Later, the president asked Porter a few times in passing whether he had spoken to Brand, but Porter did not reach out to her because he was uncomfortable with the task. In asking him to reach out to Brand, Porter understood the president to want to find someone to end the Russia investigation or fire the special counsel, although the president never said so explicitly. Porter did not contact Rand because he was sensitive to the implications of that action and did not want to be involved in a chain of events associated with an effort to end the investigation or fire the special counsel. McGahn recalled that during the summer of 2017, he and the president discussed the fact that if Sessions were no longer in his position, the special counsel would report directly to a non-recused attorney general. McCann, McGahn told the president that things might not change much under a new attorney general. McGahn also recalled that in or around July 2017, the president frequently brought up his displeasure with Sessions. Hicks recalled that the president viewed Sessions' recusal from the Russia investigation as an act of his disloyalty. In addition to criticizing Sessions' recusal, the president raised other concerns about Sessions and his job performance with McGahn and Hicks. Two, additional efforts to have Sessions unrecused or direct investigations covered by his recusal. Later in July 2017, the president continued to urge Sessions to reverse his recusal from campaign-related investigations and consider replacing Sessions with an attorney general who would not be recused. On October 16, 2017, the president met privately with Sessions and said that the Department of Justice was not investigating individuals and events that the president thought the department should be investigating. According to contemporaneous notes taken by Porter, who was at the meeting, the president mentioned Clinton's emails and said, don't have to tell us, just take a look. Sessions did not offer any assurances or promises to the president that the Department of Justice would comply with that request. Two days later, on October 18, 2017, the president tweeted, Wow, FBI confirmed report that James Comey drafted letter exonerating crooked Hillary Clinton long before investigation was complete. Many people not interviewed, including Clinton herself. Comey stated under oath that he didn't do this obviously a fix. Where is Justice Department? On October 29th, 2017, the president tweeted that there was anger and unity over a lack of investigation of Clinton and the Comey fix and concluded, do something. On December 6, 2017, five days after Flynn pleaded guilty to lying about his contact with the Russian government, the president asked to speak with Sessions in the Oval Office at the end of a cabinet meeting. During that Oval Office meeting, which Porter attended, the president again suggested 
that Sessions could unrecuse, which Porter linked to taking back supervision of the Russia investigation and directing an investigation of Hillary Clinton. According to contemporaneous notes taken by Porter, the president said, I don't I don't know if you could unrecuse yourself. You'd be a hero, not telling you to do anything. Dershowitz says POTUS can get involved, can order AG to investigate. I don't want to get involved. I'm not going to get involved. I'm not going to do anything or direct you to do anything. I just want to be treated fairly. According to Porter's notes, Session responded, we are taking steps, whole new leadership team. Professionals will operate according to the law. Sessions also said, I never saw anything that was improper, which Porter thought was noteworthy because it did not fit with the previous discussion about Clinton. Porter understood Sessions to be reassuring the president that he was on the president's team. At the end of December, the president told the New York Times it was too bad that Sessions had recused himself from the Russia investigation. When asked whether Holder had been a more loyal attorney general to President Obama than Sessions was to him, the president said, I don't want to get into loyalty, but I will tell you that I will say this. Holder protected President Obama, totally protected him. When you look at the things that he did and Holder protected the president, I have great respect for that. I'll be honest. Later in January, the president brought up the idea of replacing Sessions and told Porter that he wanted to clean house at the Department of Justice in a meeting in the White House residence that Porter attended on January 2017. On January 27th, 2018, Porter recalled that the president talked about the great attorneys he had in the, he had in the past with successful rent records, such as Roy Cohn and Jay Goldberg, and said that one of his biggest failings as president was that he did not he had not surrounded himself with good attorneys citing Sessions as an example. The president raised Sessions' recusal and brought up and criticized the special counsel investigation. Over the next several months, the president continued to criticize Sessions in tweets and media interviews and on several occasions appeared to publicly encourage him to take action in the Russia investigation despite his recusal. On June 5th, 2018, for example, the president tweeted... The Russian witch hunt hoax continues all because Jeff Sessions didn't tell me that he was going to recuse himself. I would have quickly picked someone else. So much time and money wasted. So many lives ruined. And Sessions knew better than most that there was no collusion. On August 1st, 2018, the president tweeted that Attorney General Jeff Sessions should stop this rigged witch hunt right now. On August 23rd, 2018, the president publicly criticized Sessions in a press interview and suggested the pro- that prosecutions at the Department of Justice were politically motivated because Paul Manafort had been prosecuted, but Democrats not. The president said, I put in an attorney general that never took control of the Justice, Justice Department, Jeff Sessions. That day, Sessions issued a press statement that said, I took control of the Department of Justice the day I was sworn in. While I am attorney general, the actions of the Department of Justice will not be improperly influenced by political considerations. The next day, the president tweeted a response. Department of Justice will not be improperly influenced by political considerations. Jeff, this is great. What everyone wants. So look into all of the corruption on the other side, including 
deleted emails, Comey lies and leaks, Mueller conflicts, McCabe, Strzok, Page, or FISA abuse, Christopher Steele and his phony and corrupt dossier, the Clinton Foundation, illegal surveillance of Trump campaign, Russian collusion by Dems, and so much more. Open up the papers and documents without redaction. Come on, Jeff, you can do it. The country is waiting. On November 7, 2018, the day after the midterm elections, the president replaced Sessions with Sessions' chief of staff as acting attorney general. On November 7, 2018, the day after the midterm elections, the president replaced Sessions with Sessions' chief of staff as acting attorney general. That was a repeat um, analysis. In analyzing the president's effort to have Sessions unrecuse himself and regain control of the Russian investigation, the following considerations and evidence are, re- are relevant to the elements of obstruction of justice. Obstruct A, obstructive act. To determine if the president's effort to have the attorney general unrecused could qualify as an obstructive act, it would be necessary to assess evidence on whether those actions would naturally impede the Russia investigation. That inquiry would take into account the supervisory role that the attorney general, if unrecused, would play in the Russia investigation. It also would have to take into account that the attorney general's recusal covered other campaign-related matters. The inquiry would not turn on what attorney general Sessions would actually do if unrecused, but on whether the efforts to reverse his recusal would naturally have had the effect of impeding the Russia investigation. On multiple occasions in 2017, the president spoke with Sessions about reversing his recusal so that he could take over the Russia investigation and begin an investigation and prosecution of Hillary Clinton. For example, in early summer 2017, Sessions recalled the president asking him to unrecuse, but Sessions did not take it as a directive. When the president raised the issue again in December 2017, the president said, as recorded by Porter, not telling you to do anything. I'm not going to get involved. I'm not going to do anything or direct you to do anything. I just want to be treated fairly. The duration of the president's efforts, which span from March 2017 to August 2018, and the fact that the president president repeatedly criticized Sessions in public and in private for failing to tell the president that he would have to recuse is relevant to assessing whether the president's efforts to have Sessions unrecused could qualify as obstructive acts. B. Nexus to an official proceeding. As described above, by mid-June 2017, the existence of a grand jury investigation supervised by the special counsel was public knowledge. In addition, in July 2017, a different grand jury supervised by the special counsel was impaneled in the District of Columbia and the, and the press reported on the existence of this grand jury in early August 2017. Whether the conduct towards the attorney general would have a foreseeable impact on those proceedings turns on much of the same evidence discussed above with respect to the obstructive act element. C. Intent. There is evidence that at least one purpose of the president's conduct towards Sessions was to have Sessions assume control over the Russia investigation and supervise it in a way that would restrict its scope. By the summer of 2017, the president was aware that the special counsel was investigating him personally for obstruction of justice. 
And in the wake of the disclosures of emails about the June 9th meeting between Russians and senior members of the campaign, see volume two, section two G, it was evident that the investigation into the campaign now included the president's son, son-in-law and former campaign manager. The president had previously and unsuccessfully sought to have sessions publicly announce that the special counsel investigation would be confined to future election interference. Yet sessions remained recused. In December 2017, shortly after Flynn pleaded guilty, the president spoke to Sessions in the Oval Office with only Porter present and told Sessions that he would be a hero if he unrecused. Porter linked that request to the president's desire that Sessions take back supervision of the Russia investigation and direct an investigation of Hillary Clinton. The president said in that meeting that he just wanted to be treated fairly which could reflect his perception that it was unfair that he was being investigated while Hillary Clinton was not. But a principal effect of that, of that act would be to restore supervision of the Russia investigation to the attorney general, a position that the president frequently suggested should be occupied by someone like Eric Holder and Bobby Kennedy, who the president described as protecting their presidents. A reasonable inference from these from those statements and the president's actions is that the president believed that an unrecused attorney general would play a protective role and shield the president from the ongoing Russia investigation. They don't say yes here, but I'm going to say yes. That is obstruction. I, the president orders McGahn to deny that the president tried to fire the special counsel. Overview. In late January 2018, the media reported that in June 2017, the president had ordered McGahn to have the special counsel fired based on purported conflicts of interest. But McGahn had refused, saying he would quit instead. After the story broke, the president, through his personal counsel and two aides, sought to have McGahn deny that he had been directed to remove the special counsel. Each time he was approached, McGahn responded that he would not refute the press accounts because they were accurate in reporting on the president's efforts to have the special counsel removed. The president later personally met with McGahn in the Oval Office with only the chief of staff present and tried to get McGahn to say that the president never ordered him to fire the special counsel. McGahn refused and insisted his memory of the president's direction to remove the special counsel was accurate. In that same meeting, the president challenged McGahn for taking notes of his discussions with the president and asked why he had told special counsel investigators that he had been directed to have the special counsel removed. Evidence. One, the press reports that the president tried to fire the special counsel. On January 25th, 2018, the New York Times reported that in June 2017, the president had ordered McGahn to have the Department of Justice fire the special counsel. According to the article, amidst the first wave of news media reports that Mr. Mueller was examining a possible obstruction case, the president began to argue that Mr. Mueller had three conflicts of interest that disqualified him from overseeing the investigation. The article further reported that after receiving the president's order to fire Mr. Mueller, the White House counsel refused to ask the Justice Department to dismiss the special counsel, saying he would quit instead. 
The article stated that the president ultimately backed down after the White House counsel threatened to resign rather than carry out the directive. After the article was published, the president dismissed the story when asked about it by reporters saying, fake news, folks, fake news, a typical New York Times fake story. The next day, the Washington Post reported on the same event, but added that McGahn had not told the president directly that he intended to resign rather than carry out the directives to have the special counsel terminated. In that respect, the Post story clarified the Times story, which could be read to suggest that McGahn had told the president of his intention to quit, causing the president to back down from the orders to have the special counsel fired. The president's two, the president seeks to have McGahn dispute the press reports. On January 26, 2018, the president's personal counsel called McGahn's attorney and said that the president wanted McGahn to put out a statement denying that he had been asked to fire the special counsel and that he had threatened to quit in protest. McGahn's attorney spoke with McGahn about the request and then called the president's personal counsel to relay that McGahn would not make a statement. McGahn's attorney informed the president's personal counsel that the Times story was accurate in reporting that the president wanted the special counsel removed. Accordingly, McGahn's attorney said, although the article was inaccurate in some other respects, McGahn could not comply with the president's request to dispute the story. Hicks recalled relaying to the president that one of his attorneys had spoken to McGahn's attorney about the issue. Also on January 26, 2017, Hicks recalled that the president asked Sanders to contact McGahn about the story. McGahn told Sanders that there was no need to respond and indicated that some of the articles were true. Consistent with that position, McGahn did not correct the time story. On June 4th, no, on February 4th, 2018, Priebus appeared on Meet the Press and said he had not heard the president say that he wanted the special counsel fired. After Priebus's appearance, the president called Priebus and said he did a great job on Meet the Press. The president also told Priebus that the president had never said any of those things about the special counsel. The next day on February 5th, 2018, the president complained about the Times article to Porter. The president told Porter that the article was bullshit and he had not sought to terminate the special counsel. The president said that McGahn leaked to the media to make himself look good. The president then directed Porter to tell McGahn to create a record to make clear that the president never directed McGahn to fire the special counsel. Porter thought the matter should be handled by the White House Communications Office, but the president said he wanted McGahn to write a letter to the file for our records and wanted something beyond a press statement to demonstrate that the report was inaccurate. The president referred to McGahn as a lying bastard and said that he wanted a record from him. Porter recalled the president saying something to the effect, if he doesn't write the letter, then maybe I'll have to get rid of him. Later that day, Porter spoke to McGahn to deliver the president's message. Porter told McGahn that he had to write a letter to dispute that he was ever ordered to terminate the special counsel. McGahn shrugged off the request, explaining that the media reports were true. McGahn told Porter that the president had been insistent on firing the special counsel 
and then began a plan to resign rather than carry out the order, although he had not personally told the president he intended to quit. Porter told McGahn that the president suggested that McGahn would be fired if he did not write the letter. McGahn dismissed the threat, saying that the optics would be terrible if the president followed through with firing him on that basis. McGahn said he would not write the letter the president had requested. Porter said that to his knowledge, the issue of McGahn's letter never came up with the president again. But former, but Porter did recall telling Kelly about his conversation with McGahn. The next day, on February 6, 2018, Kelly scheduled times for McGahn to meet with, with him and the president in the Oval Office to discuss the Times article. The morning of the meeting, the president's personal counsel called McGahn's attorney and said that the president was going to be speaking with McGahn and McGahn could not resign no matter what happened in the meeting. The president began the Oval Office meeting by telling McGahn that the New York Times story did not look good and McGahn needed to correct it. McGahn recalled the president said, I never said to fire Mueller. I never said fire. This story doesn't look good. You need to correct this. You're the White House counsel. In response, McGahn acknowledged that he had not told the president directly that he planned to resign, but said that the story was otherwise accurate. The president asked McGahn, did I say the word fire? McGahn responded, what you said is call Rod Rosenstein. Tell Rod that Mueller has conflicts and can't be the special counsel. The president responded, I never said that. The president said he merely wanted McGahn to raise the conflicts issue with Rosenstein and leave it to him to decide what to do. McGahn told the president he did not understand the conversation that way and instead it heard call Rod. There are conflicts. Mueller has to go. The president asked McGahn whether he would do a correction and McGahn said no. McGahn thought the president was testing his mettle to see how committed McGahn was to what happened. Kelly described the meeting as a little tense. The president also asked McGahn in the meeting why he had told special counsel's office investigators that the president had told him to have the special counsel removed. McGahn responded that he had to and that his conversations with the president were not protected by attorney-client privilege. The president then asked, what about these notes? Why do you take notes? Lawyers don't take notes. I never had a lawyer who took notes. McGahn responded that he kept notes because he is a real lawyer and explained that notes create a record and are not a bad thing. The president said, I've had a lot of good lawyers like Roy Cohn. He did not take notes. After the Oval Office meeting concluded, Kelly recalled McGahn telling him that McGahn and the president did have that conversation about removing the special counsel. McGahn recalled that Kelly said that he had pointed out to the president after the Oval Office that McGahn had not backed down and would not budge. Following the Oval Office meeting, the president's personal counsel called McGahn's counsel and relayed that the president was fine with McGahn. Analysis. In analyzing the president's efforts to have McGahn deny that he had been ordered to have the special counsel removed, the following evidence is relevant to the elements of obstruction of justice. A. Obstructive act. President's repeated efforts to get McGahn to create a record denying that the president had directed him to remove the special counsel would qualify as an obstructive act 
if it had the natural tendency to constrain McGann from testifying truthfully or to undermine his credibility as a potential witness if he testified consistently with his memory rather than with what the record said. There is some evidence that at the time the New York Times and Washington Post stories were published in late January 2018, the president believed the stories were wrong and that he had never told McGahn to have Rosenstein remove the special counsel. The president correctly understood that McGahn had not told the president directly that he planned to resign. In addition, the president told Priebus and Porter that he had not sought to terminate the special counsel. And in the Oval Office meeting with McGahn, the president said, I never said to fire Mueller. I never said fire. That evidence could indicate that the president was not attempting to persuade McGahn to change his story, but was instead offering his own a different recollection of the substance of his January 2017 conversations with McGahn and McGahn's reaction to them. Other evidence cuts against that understanding of the president's conduct. As previously described, see Volume 2, Section 2E, substantial evidence supports McGahn's account that the president had directed him to have the special counsel removed, including the timing and context of the president's directives. directive, the manner in which McGahn reacted, and the fact that the president had been told the conflicts were insubstantial were being considered by the Department of Justice and should be raised with the president's personal counsel rather than brought to McGahn. In addition, the president's subsequent denials that he had told McGahn to have the special counsel removed were carefully worded. When first asked about the New York Times story, the president said, fake news, fake news. The president said, fake news, folks, fake news, a typical New York Times fake story. And when the president spoke with McGahn in the Oval Office, he focused on whether he had used the word fire, saying, I never said to fire Mueller. I never said fire. And did I say the word fire? The president's assertion in the Oval Office meeting that he had not he had never directed McGahn to have the special counsel removed thus runs counter to the evidence. In addition, Even if the president sincerely disagreed with McGahn's story, with McGahn's memory of the June 17, 2017 events, the evidence indicates that the president knew by the time of the Oval Office meeting that McGahn's account differed and that McGahn was firm in his views. Shortly after the story broke, the president's counsel told McGahn's counsel that the president wanted McGahn to make a statement denying he had been asked to fire the special counsel. But McGahn responded through his counsel that the aspect of the story was accurate and he therefore could not comply with the president's request. The president then directed Sanders to tell McGahn to correct the story, but McGahn told her he would not do so because the story was accurate in reporting on the president's order. Consistent with that position, McGahn never issued a correction. More than a week later, the president brought up the issue again with Porter, made comments indicating the president thought McGahn had leaked the story and directed Porter to have McGahn create a record denying that the president had tried to fire the special counsel. At that point, the president said he might have have to get rid of McGahn if McGahn did not comply. McGahn again refused and told Porter, as he had told Sanders and his and as his counsel 
had told the president's counsel that the president had, in fact, ordered him to have Rosenstein remove the special counsel. That evidence indicates that by the time of the Oval Office meeting, the president was aware that McGahn did not think the story was false and did not want to issue a statement or create a written record denying facts that McGahn believed to be true. The president nevertheless persisted and asked McGahn to repudiate facts that McGahn had previously said were accurate. B. Nexus to an official proceeding. By January 2018, the special counsel's use of the grand jury had been further confirmed by the return of several indictments. The president also was aware that the special counsel was investigating obstruction related events because, among other reasons, on January 8, 2018, the special counsel's office provided his counsel with a detailed list of topics for a possible interview with the president. The president knew that McGahn had personal knowledge of many of the events the special counsel was investigating and that McGahn had already been interviewed by special counsel investigators. And in the Oval Office meeting, the president indicated he knew that McGahn had told the special counsel's office about the president's effort to remove the special counsel. The president challenged McGahn for disclosing that information and for taking notes that he viewed as creating unnecessary legal exposure. That evidence indicates the president's awareness that the June 17th 2017 events were relevant to the special counsel's investigation and any grand jury investigation that might grow out of it. To establish a nexus, it would be necessary to show that the president's actions would have the natural tendency to affect such a proceeding or that they would hinder, delay, or prevent the communication of information to investigators. Because McGahn had spoken to special counsel, investigators before January 2018, the president could not have been seeking to influence his prior statements in those interviews. But because McGahn had repeatedly spoke to investigators, the obstruction inquiry was not complete and it was foreseeable that he would be interviewed again on obstruction related topics. If the president were focused slowly on a press strategy and seeking to have McGahn refute the New York Times article, a nexus to a proceeding or to further investigative interviews would not be shown. But the president's efforts to have McGahn write a letter for our records approximately 10 days after the story had come out. Well past the typical time to issue a correction for a news story indicates the president was not focused solely on a press strategy, but instead likely contemplated the ongoing investigation and any proceedings arising from it. C, intent. Substantial evidence indicates that in repeatedly urging McGahn to dispute that he was ordering, that he was ordered to have the special counsel terminated, the president acted for the purpose of influencing McGahn's account in order to deflect or prevent future further scrutiny of the president's conduct towards the investigation. Several facts support that conclusion. The president made repeated attempts to get McGahn to change his story. As described above, by the time of the last attempt, the evidence suggests that the president had been told on multiple occasions that McGahn believed the president had ordered 
that had ordered him to have the special counsel terminated. McGahn interpreted his encounter with the president in the Oval Office as an attempt to test his mettle and see how committed he was to his memory of what had occurred. The president had already laid the groundwork for pressing McGahn to alter his account by telling Porter that it might be necessary to fire McGahn if he did not deny the story and Porter relayed that statement to McGahn. Additional evidence of the president's intent may be gleaned from the fact that his counsel was sufficiently alarmed by the prospect of the president's meeting with McGahn, that he called McGahn's counsel and said that McGahn could not resign no matter what happened in the Oval Office that day. The president's counsel was well aware of McGahn's resolve not to issue what he believed to be a false account of event, despite the president's request. Finally, as noted above, the president brought up the special counsel investigation in his Oval Office meeting with McGahn and criticized him for telling this office about the June 17, 2017 events. The president's statement reflect his understanding and his displeasure that those events would be part of an obstruction of justice inquiry. J, the president's conduct towards Flynn, Manafort, and this is redacted for harm to ongoing matter. Overview. In addition to the interactions with McGahn described above, the president has taken other actions directed at possible witnesses in the special counsel's investigation, including Flynn, Manafort, and another redaction for harm to ongoing matter. And as described in the next section, Cohen, when Flynn withdrew from a joint defense agreement with the president, the president's personal counsel stated that Flynn's actions would be viewed as reflecting hostility towards the president. During Manafort's prosecution and while the jury was deliberating, the president repeatedly stated that Manafort was being treated unfairly and made it known that Manafort could receive a pardon. This is redacted for harm to ongoing matter. Evidence one conduct directed at Michael Flynn. As previously noted, see volume two, section two B, the president asked for Flynn's resignation on February 13th, 2017. Following Flynn's resignation, the president made positive public comments about Flynn, describing him as a wonderful man, a fine person and a very good person. The president also privately asked advisors to pass messages to Flynn conveying that the president still cared about him and encouraged him to stay strong. In late November 2017, Flynn began to cooperate with this office. On November 22nd, 2017, Flynn withdrew from a joint defense agreement he had with the president. Flynn's counsel told the president's personal counsel and counsel for the White House that Flynn could no longer have confidential communication with the White House or the president. Later that night, the president's personal counsel left a voicemail for Flynn's counsel that said, I understand your situation, but let me see if I can't state it in starker terms. It wouldn't surprise me if you've gone on to make a deal with the government. If there's information that implicates the president, then we've got a national security issue. So, you know, we need some kinds of head, some kind of heads up um, just for the sake of protecting all our interests if we can. Remember what we've always said about the president and his feelings toward Flynn. And that still remains. On November 23rd, 2017, Flynn's attorneys returned the call from the president's personal counsel to acknowledge receipt of the voicemail. 
Flynn's attorneys reiterated that they were no longer in a position to share information under any sort of privilege. According to Flynn's attorneys, the president's personal counsel was indignant and vocal in his disagreement. The president's personal counsel said that he interpreted what they said to him as a reflection of Flynn's hostility towards the president and that he planned to inform his client of that interpretation. Flynn's attorneys understood that statement to be an attempt to make them reconsider their position because the president's personal counsel believed that Flynn would be disturbed to know that such a message would be conveyed to the president. On December 1st, 2017, Flynn pleaded guilty to making false statements pursuant to a cooperation agreement. The next day, the president told the press that he was not concerned about what Flynn might tell the special counsel. In response to a question about whether the president still stood behind Flynn, the president responded, we'll see what happens. Over the next several days, the president made public statements expressing sympathy for Flynn and indicating he had not been treated fairly. On December 15, 2017, the president responded to a press inquiry about whether he was considering a pardon for Flynn by saying, I don't want this to talk about pardons for Michael Flynn yet. We'll see what happens. Let's see. I can say this. When you look at what's gone on with the FBI and with the Justice Department, people are very, very, very angry. Two, conduct directed at Paul Manafort. On October 27, 2017, a grand jury in the District of Columbia indicted Manafort and former deputy campaign manager Richard Gates on multiple felony counts and on February 26th, 22nd, 2018, a grand jury in the Eastern District of Virginia indicted Manafort and Gates on additional felony counts. The charges in both cases alleged criminal conduct by Manafort that began as early as 2005 and continued through 2018. In January 2018, Manafort told Gates that he had talked to the president's personal counsel and they were going to take care of us. Manafort told Gates it was stupid to plead saying that he had been in touch with the president's personal counsel and repeating that they should sit tight and will be taken care of. Gates asked Manafort outright if anyone mentioned pardons and Manafort said no one used that word. As the proceedings against Manafort progressed in court, the president told Porter that he never liked Manafort and that Manafort did not know what he was doing on the campaign. The president discussed with aides whether and in what way Manafort might be cooperating with the special counsel's investigation and whether Manafort knew any information that would be harmful to the president. In public, the president made statements criticizing the prosecution and suggesting that Manafort was being treated unfairly. On June 15, 2018, before a scheduled court hearing that day on whether Manafort's bail should be revoked based on new charges that Manafort had tampered with witnesses while out on bail, the president told the press I feel badly about a lot of them because I think a lot of it is very unfair. I mean, I look at some of them when they go back 12 years, like Manafort has nothing to do with our campaign, but I feel a little badly about it. They went back 12 years to get things that he did 12 years ago. I feel badly for some people because they've gone back 12 years to find things about somebody. And I don't think it's right. In response to a question about whether he was considering a pardon for Manafort or other individuals involved in the special counsel's investigation, the president said, I don't want to talk about that. No, I don't want to talk about that. 
But look, I do want to see people treated fairly. That's what it's all about. Hours later, Manafort's bail was revoked and the president tweeted, wow, what a tough sentence for Paul Manafort, who has represented Ronald Reagan, Bob Dole, and many other top political people in campaigns. Didn't know Manafort was the head of the mob. What about Comey and Crooked Hillary and all the others? Very unfair. Immediately following the revocation of Manafort's bail, the president's personal lawyer, Rudolph Giuliani, gave a series of interviews in which he raised the possibility of a pardon for Manafort. Giuliani told the New York Daily News that when the whole thing is over, things might get cleaned up with some presidential pardons. Giuliani also said in an interview that although the president should not pardon anyone while the special counsel's investigation was ongoing, when the investigation is concluded, he's kind of on his own, right? In a CNN interview two days later, Giuliani said, I guess I should clarify this once and for all. The president has issued no pardons in this investigation. The president is not going to issue pardons in this investigation. When it's over, hey, he's the president of the United States. He retains his pardon power. Nobody is taking that away from him. Giuliani rejected the suggestion that that his and the president's comments could signal to defendants that they should not cooperate in a criminal prosecution because a pardon might follow, saying the comments were certainly not intended that way. Giuliani said the comments only acknowledged that an individual involved in the investigation would would not be excluded from a pardon if, in fact, the president and his advisors come to the conclusion that you have been treated unfairly. Giuliani observed that pardons were not unusual in political investigations, but said that doesn't mean they're going to happen here doesn't mean that anybody should rely on it. Big signal is nobody has been pardoned yet. On July 31st, 2018, Manafort's criminal trial began in the Eastern District of Virginia, generating substantial news coverage. The next day, the president tweeted, this is a terrible situation and Attorney General Jeff Sessions should stop this rigged witch witch hunt right now before it continues to stain our country any further. Bob Mueller is totally conflicted and his 17 angry Democrats that are doing his dirty work are a disgrace to USA. Minutes later, the president tweeted, Paul Manafort worked for Ronald Reagan, Bob Dole, and many other highly prominent and respected political leaders. He worked for me for a very short time. Why didn't government tell me that he was under investigation? These old charges have nothing to do with collusion, a hoax. Later in the day, the president tweeted, looking back on history, who was treated worse? Alphonse Capone, legendary mob boss killer and public enemy number one, or Paul Manafort, political operative and Reagan Dole darling now serving solitary confinement, although convicted of nothing? Where is the Russian collusion? The president's tweets about the Manafort trial were widely covered by the press. When asked about the president's tweets, Sanders told the press, Certainly, the president's been clear. He thinks Paul Manafort's been treated unfairly. On August 16th, 2018, the Manafort case was submitted to the jury and deliberations began. At that time, Giuliani had recently suggested to reporters that the special counsel investigation needed to be done in the next two or three weeks. And media stories reported that a Manafort acquittal would add to criticism that the special counsel investigation was not worth the time and expense, whereas a conviction could show that ending the investigation would be premature. On August 17th, 2018, 
As jury deliberations continued, the president commented on the trial from the South Lawn of the White House. In an impromptu exchange with reporters that lasted approximately five minutes, the president twice called the special counsel's investigation a rigged witch hunt. When asked whether he would pardon Manafort if he was convicted, the president said, I don't talk about that now. I don't talk about that. The president then added, without being asked a further question, I think the whole Manafort trial is very sad when you look at what's going on there. I think it's a very sad day for our country. He worked for me for a very short period of time, but you know what? He happens to be a very good person, and I think it's very sad what they've done to Paul Manafort. The president did not take further questions. In response to the president's statements, Manafort's attorney said, Mr. Manafort really appreciates the support of President Trump. On August 21st, 2018, the jury found Manafort guilty on eight felony counts. Also on August 21st, Michael Cohen pleaded guilty to eight offenses, including a campaign finance violation that he said had occurred in coordination with and at the direction of a candidate for federal office. The president reacted to Manafort's conviction that day by telling reporters, Paul Manafort's a good man, and it's a very sad thing that happened. The president described the special counsel's investigation as a witch hunt that ends in disgrace. The next day, the president tweeted, I feel very badly for Paul Manafort and his wonderful family. Justice took a 12-year-old tax case, among other things, applied tremendous pressure on him, and unlike Michael Cohen, he refused to break, make up stories in order to get a deal. Such respect for a brave man. In a Fox News interview on August 22nd, 2018, the president said, Cohen makes a better deal when he uses me like everybody else. And one of the reasons I respect Paul Manafort so much is he went through that trial. You know, they make up stories. People make up stories. This whole thing about flipping, they call it. I know all about flipping. The president said that flipping was not fair and almost ought to be outlawed. In response to a question about whether he was considering a pardon for Manafort, the president said, I have great respect for what he's done in terms of what he's gone through. He worked for many, many people, many, many years. And I would say what he did, some of the charges they threw against him, every consultant, every lobbyist in Washington probably does. Lies. Giuliani told journalists that the president really thinks Manafort has been horribly treated and that he and the president had discussed the political fallout if the president pardoned Manafort. The next day, Giuliani told the Washington Post that the president had asked his lawyers for advice on the possibility of a pardon for Manafort and other aides and had been counseled against considering a pardon until the investigation concluded. On September 14th, 2018, Manafort pleaded guilty to charges in the District of Columbia and signed a plea agreement that required him to cooperate with investigators. Giuliani was reported to have publicly said that Manafort remained in a joint defense agreement with the president following Manafort's guilty plea, an agreement to cooperate, and that Manafort's attorneys regularly briefed the president's lawyers on the topics discussed and the information Manafort had provided in interviews with the special counsel's office. On November 26, 2018, the special counsel's office disclosed in a public court filing 
that Manafort had breached his plea agreement by lying about multiple subjects. The next day, Giuliani said that the president had been upset for weeks about what he considered to be the un-American, horrible treatment of Manafort. In an interview on November 28th, 2018, the president suggested that it was very brave that Manafort did not flip. If you told the truth, you go to jail. You know, this flipping stuff is terrible. You flip and you lie and you get the prosecutors will tell you 99% of the time they can get people to flip. It's rare that they can't. But I had three people, Manafort, Corsi. I don't know Corsi, but he refuses to say what they demanded. Manafort, Corsi, uh, this is redacted for harm to ongoing matter. It's actually very brave. In response to a question about a potential pardon for Manafort, the president said, it was never discussed, but I wouldn't take it off the table. Why would I take it off the table? This next uh, section three is all redacted for harm to ongoing matter. All the footnotes are redacted for harm to ongoing matter. We're going to try to give you all some clues on page 129. All redacted for harm to ongoing matter, including the footnotes. Same for 130. And now we go to the analysis. In analyzing the president's conduct towards Flynn, Manafort, and harm to ongoing matter, the following evidence is relevant to the elements of obstruction of justice. A, obstructive acts. The president's actions towards witnesses in the special counsel's investigation would qualify as obstructive if they had the natural tendency to prevent particular witnesses from testifying truthfully or otherwise would have the probable effect of influencing, delaying, or preventing their testimony to law enforcement. Y'all should know that by heart by now. With regard to Flynn, the president sent private and public messages to Flynn, encouraging him to stay strong and conveying that the president still cared about him before he began to cooperate with the government. When Flynn's attorneys withdrew him from a joint defense agreement with the president, signaling that Flynn was potentially cooperating with the government, the president's personal counsel initially reminded Flynn's counsel of the president's warm feelings towards Flynn and said, that still remains. But when Flynn's counsel reiterated that Flynn could no longer share information under a joint defense agreement, the president's personal counsel stated that the decision would be interpreted as reflecting Flynn's hostility towards the president. That sequence of events could have had the potential to affect Flynn's decision to cooperate, as well as the extent of the cooperation, of that cooperation. Because of privilege issues, however, we could not determine whether the president was personally involved in or knew about the specific message his counsel delivered to Flynn's counsel. With respect to Manafort, there is evidence that the president's actions had the potential to influence Manafort's decision whether to cooperate with the government. The president and his personal counsel made repeated statements suggesting that a pardon was a possibility for Manafort, while also making it clear that the president did not want Manafort to flip and cooperate with the government. On June 15, 2018, the day the judge presiding over Manafort's D.C. case was considering whether to revoke his bail, the president said that he felt badly for Manafort and stated, I think a lot of it is very unfair. And when asked about a pardon for Manafort, the president said, I do want to see people treated fairly. That's what it's all about. 
Later that day, after Manafort's bail was revoked, the president called it a tough sentence that was very unfair. Two days later, the president's personal counsel stated that individuals involved in the special counsel's investigation could receive a pardon if, in fact, the president and his advisors come to the conclusion that you have been treated unfairly, using language that paralleled how the president had already described the treatment of Manafort. Those statements combined with the president's commendation of Manafort for being a brave man who refused to break suggested that a pardon was a more likely possibility was a more likely possibility if Manafort continued not to cooperate with the government. And while Manafort eventually pleaded guilty pursuant to a cooperation agreement, he was found to have violated the agreement by what? Lying to investors. Sorry, I couldn't help myself on that. The president's public statements during the Manafort trial, including during jury deliberations, also had the potential to influence the trial jury. On the second day of trial, for example, the president called the prosecution a terrible situation and a hoax that continues to stain our country and referred to Manafort as a Reagan dull darling who was serving solitary confinement, even though he was convicted of nothing. Those statements were widely picked up by the press. While jurors were instructed not to watch or read the news about the case and are presumed to follow those instructions, the president's statements during the trial generated substantial media coverage that could have reached jurors if they happened to see the statements or learned about them from others. And the president's statements during jury deliberations that Manafort happens to be a very good person and that it's very sad what they've done to Paul Manafort had the potential to influence jurors who learned of the statements, which the president made just as jurors were considering whether to convict or acquit Manafort. This next paragraph is redacted for harm to ongoing matter. B, nexus to an official proceeding. The president's actions towards Flynn, Manafort, and harm to ongoing matter redaction appear to have been connected to pending or anticipated official proceedings involving each individual. The president's conduct towards Flynn, this is redacted for harm to ongoing matter, principally occurred when both were under criminal investigation by the special counsel's office and press reports speculated about whether they would cooperate with the special counsel's investigation. And the president's conduct toward Manafort was directly connected to the official proceedings involving him. The president made statements about Manafort and the charges against him during Manafort's criminal trial. And the president's comments about the prospect of Manafort flipping occurred when it was clear the special counsel continued to oversee grand jury proceedings. C, intent. Evidence concerning the president's intent related to Flynn as a potential witness is inconclusive. As previously noted, because of privilege issues, we do not have evidence establishing whether the president knew about or was involved in his counsel's communication with Flynn's counsel, stating that Flynn's decision to withdraw from the joint defense agreement and cooperate with the government would be viewed as reflecting hostility towards the president. And regardless of what the president's personal counsel communicated, the president continued to express sympathy for Flynn after he pleaded guilty pursuant to a cooperation agreement stating that Flynn had led a very strong life 
and the president felt very badly about what had happened to him. Evidence concerning the president's conduct towards Manafort indicates that the president intended to encourage Manafort to not cooperate with the government. Before Manafort was convicted, the president repeatedly stated that Manafort had been treated unfairly. One day after Manafort was convicted on eight felony charges and potentially faced a lengthy prison term, the president said that Manafort was a brave man for refusing to break and that flipping almost ought to be outlawed. At the same time, although the president had privately told aides he did not like Manafort, he publicly called Manafort a good man and said he had a wonderful family. And when the president was asked whether he was considering a pardon for Manafort, the president did not respond directly and instead said he had great respect for what Manafort's done in terms of what he's gone through. The president added that some of the charges they threw against him, every consultant, every lobbyist in Washington probably does. In light of the president's counsel's previous statements that the investigations might get cleaned up with some presidential pardons and that a pardon would be possible if the president comes to the conclusion that you have been treated unfairly, the evidence supports the inference that the president intended Manafort to believe that he could receive a pardon, which would make cooperation with the government as a means of obtaining a lesser sentence unnecessary. We also examined the evidence of the president's intent in making public statements about Manafort at the beginning of his trial and when the jury was deliberating. Some evidence supports a conclusion that the president intended, at least in part, to influence the jury. The trial generated widespread publicity, and as the jury began to deliberate, commentators suggested that an acquittal would add to pressure to end the special counsel's investigation. By publicly stating on the second day of deliberations that Manafort happens to be a very good person and that it's very sad what they've done to Paul Manafort, right after calling the special counsel's investigation a rigged witch hunt, the president's statements could if they reach jurors, have the natural tendency to engender sympathy for Manafort among jurors. And a fact finder could infer that the president intended that result. But there are alternative explanations for the president's comments, including that he genuinely felt sorry for Manafort or that his goal was not to influence the jury, but to influence public opinion. The president's comments also could have been intended to continue sending a message to Manafort that a pardon was possible. As described above, the president made his comments about Manafort being a very good person immediately after declining to answer a question about whether he would pardon Manafort. Next section is redacted for harm to ongoing matter. K, the president's conduct involving Michael Cohen. Overview. The president's conduct involving Michael Cohen spans the full period of our investigation. During the campaign, Cohen pursued the Trump Tower Moscow project on behalf of the Trump organization. Cohen briefed candidate Trump on the project numerous times, including discussing whether Trump should travel to Russia to advance the deal. After the media began questioning Trump's connection to Russia, Cohen promoted a party line that publicly distanced Trump from Russia and asserted that he had no business there. Cohen continued to adhere 
to that party line in 2017 when Congress asked him to provide documents and testimony in its Russia investigation. In an attempt to minimize the president's connection to Russia, Cohen submitted a letter to Congress falsely stating that he only briefed Trump on the Trump Tower Moscow project three times, that he did not consider asking Trump to travel to Russia, that Cohen had not received a response to an outreach he made to the Russian government, and that the project ended in January 2016, before the first Republican caucus or primary. While working on the congressional statement, Cohen had extensive discussions with the president's personal counsel, who, according to Cohen, said that Cohen should not contradict the president and should keep the statement short and tight. After the FBI searched Cohen's home and office in April 2018, the president publicly asserted that Cohen would not flip and privately pass messages of support to him. Cohen also discussed pardons with the president's personal counsel and believed that if he stayed on message, he would get a pardon or the president would do something else to make the investigation end. But after Cohen began cooperating with the government in July 2018, the president publicly criticized him, called him a rat, and suggested his family members had committed crimes. Evidence. One, candidate Trump's awareness of and involvement in the Trump Tower Moscow project. The president's interactions with Cohen as a witness took place against the background of the president's involvement in the Trump Tower Moscow project. As described in detail in volume one, section 4A1, from September 2015 until at least June 2016, the Trump organization pursued a Trump Tower Moscow project in Russia with negotiations conducted by Cohen, then executive vice president of the Trump organization and special counsel to Donald J. Trump. The Trump organization had previously and unsuccessfully pursued a building project in Moscow. According to Cohen, in approximately September 2015, he obtained internal approval from Trump to negotiate on behalf of the Trump organization to have a Russian corporation build a tower in Moscow that licensed the Trump name and brand. Cohen thereafter had numerous brief conversations with Trump about the project. Cohen recalled that Trump wanted to be updated on any developments with Trump Tower Moscow and on several occasions brought the project up with Cohen to ask what was happening on it. Cohen also discussed the project on multiple occasions with Donald Trump Jr. and Ivanka Trump. In the fall of 2015, Trump signed a letter of intent for the project that specified highly lucrative terms for the Trump organization. In December 2015, Felix Sater, who was handling negotiations between Cohen and the Russian corporation, asked Cohen for a copy of his and Trump's passport to facilitate travel to Russia to meet with government officials and possible financing partners. Cohen recalled discussing the trip with Trump and requesting a copy of Trump's passport from Trump's personal secretary, Rona Graff. By January 2016, Cohen had become frustrated that Sater had not set up a meeting with Russian government officials. So Cohen reached out directly to. So Cohen reached out directly by email to the office of Dmitry Peskov, who was Putin's deputy chief of staff and press secretary. On January 20th, 2016, Cohen received an email response from Elena Polyakova, Peskov's personal assistant, and phone records confirm that they then spoke for approximately 20 minutes 
during which Cohen described the Trump Tower Moscow project and requested assistance in moving the project forward. Cohen recalled briefing candidate Trump about the call soon afterwards. Cohen told Trump he spoke with a woman he identified as someone from the Kremlin, and Cohen reported that she was very professional and asked detailed questions about the project. Cohen recalled telling Trump he wished the Trump organization had assistants who were as competent as the woman from the Kremlin. Cohen thought his phone call renewed interest in the project. The day after Cohen's call with Palaikova, Sater texted Cohen asking him to call me when you have a few minutes to chat. It's about Putin. They called today. Sater told Cohen that the Russian government liked the project and on January 25th, 2016, sent an invitation for Cohen to visit Moscow for a working visit. After the outreach from Sater, Cohen recalled telling Trump that he was waiting to hear back on moving the project forward. After June 2016, Cohen continued to have conversations with Sater about Trump Tower Moscow and and continued to keep candidate Trump updated about those discussions and the status of the project. Cohen recalled that he and Trump wanted Trump Tower Moscow to succeed and that Trump never discouraged him from working on the project because of the campaign. In March or April 2016, Trump asked Cohen if anything was happening in Russia. Cohen also recalled briefing Donald Trump Jr. in the spring, a conversation that Cohen said was not idle chit-chat because Trump Tower Moscow was potentially a $1 billion deal. Cohen recalled that around May 2016, he again raised with candidate Trump the possibility of a trip to Russia to advance the Trump Tower Moscow project. At that time, Cohen had received several texts from Sater seeking to arrange dates for such a trip. On May 4th, 2016, Sater wrote to Cohen, I had a chat with Moscow Assuming the trip does happen, the question is before or after the convention. Obviously, the pre-meeting trip, you only, can happen anytime you want, but the two big guys is the question. I said I would confirm and revert. Cohen responded, my trip before Cleveland, Trump, once he becomes the nominee after the convention. On May 5th, 2016, Sater followed up a text, Sater followed up with a text that Cohen thought he probably read to Trump. Peskov would like to invite you as his guest to the St. Petersburg Forum, which is Russia's Davos. It's June 16th through the 19th. He wants to meet there with you and possibly introduce you to either Putin or Medvedev. This is perfect. The entire business class of Russia will be there as well. He said anything you want to discuss, including dates and subjects, are on the table to discuss. Cohen recalled discussing the invitation to the St. Petersburg Economic Forum with candidate Trump and saying that Putin or Russian Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev might be there. Cohen remembered that Trump said that he would be willing to travel to Russia if Cohen could lock and load on the deal. In June 2016, Cohen decided not to attend the St. Petersburg Economic Forum because Sater had not obtained a formal invitation for Cohen from Peskov. Cohen said he had a quick conversation with Trump at that time, but did not tell him that the project was over because he did not want Trump to complain that the deal was on again, off again, if it were revived. During the summer of 2016, 
Cohen recalled that candidate Trump publicly claimed that he had nothing to do with Russia and then shortly afterwards privately checked with Cohen about the status of the Trump Tower Moscow project, which Cohen found interesting. At some point that summer, Cohen recalled having a brief conversation with Trump in which Cohen said the Trump Tower project was going nowhere because the Russian development company had not secured a piece of property for the project. Uh, There's a footnote that says Cohen could not recall the precise timing of this conversation, but said he thought it occurred in June or July 2016. Cohen recalled that the conversation happened at some point after candidate Trump was publicly stating that he had nothing to do with Russia. Trump said that was too bad. And Cohen did not recall talking with Trump about the project after that. Cohen said that at no time during the campaign did Trump tell him not to pursue the project or that the project should be abandoned. Two, Cohen determines to adhere to a party line distancing candidate Trump from Russia. As previously discussed, see volume two, section two A. When questions about possible Russian support for candidate Trump emerged during the 2016 presidential campaign, Trump denied having any personal, financial or business connection to Russia, which Cohen described as the party line or message to follow for Trump and his senior advisors. After the election, the Trump organization sought to formally close out certain deals in advance of the inauguration. Cohen recalled that Trump Tower Moscow was on the list of deals to be closed out. In approximately January 2017, Cohen began receiving inquiries from the media about Trump Tower Moscow, and he recalled speaking to the president-elect when those inquiries came in. Cohen was concerned that truthful answers about the Trump Tower Moscow project might not be consistent with the message that the president-elect had no relationship with Russia. In an effort to stay on message, Cohen told a New York Times reporter that the Trump Tower Moscow deal was not feasible and it ended in January 2016. Cohen recalled that this was part of a script or talking points he had developed with President-elect Trump and others to dismiss the idea of a substantial connection between Trump and Russia. Cohen said that he discussed the talking points with Trump, but that he did not explicitly tell Trump he thought they were untrue because Trump already knew they were untrue. Cohen thought it was important to say the deal was done in January 2016, rather than acknowledge that talks continued in May and June 2016, because it limited the period when candidate Trump could be alleged to have a relationship with Russia to an early point in the campaign before Trump had become the party's presumptive nominee. Number three, Cohen submits false statements to Congress minimizing the Trump Tower Moscow project in accordance with the party line. In early May 2017, Cohen received requests from from Congress to provide testimony and documents in connection with congressional investigations of Russian interference in the 2016 election. At that time, Cohen understood Congress's interest in him to be focused on the allegations in the Steele reporting concerning a meeting Cohen allegedly had with Russian officials in Prague during the campaign. Cohen had never traveled to Prague and was not concerned about those allegations, which he believed were provably false. On May 18, 2017, Cohen met with the president to discuss the request from Congress, and the president instructed Cohen 
that he should cooperate because there was nothing there. Cohen eventually entered into a joint defense agreement with the president and other individuals who were part of the Russia investigation. In the months leading up to his congressional testimony, Cohen frequently spoke with the president's personal counsel. It's a footnote here that says 958 on page 139 that says Cohen told investigators about his conversations with the president's personal counsel after waiving any privilege of his own. And after this office advised his counsel not to provide any communications that would be covered by any other privilege, including communications protected by a joint defense or common interest privilege. As a result, most of what Cohen told us about his conversations with the president's personal counsel concerned what Cohen had communicated to the president's personal counsel and not what was said in response. Cohen described certain statements made by the president's personal counsel, however, that are set forth in this section. Cohen and his counsel were were better positioned than this office to evaluate whether any privilege protected those statements because they had knowledge of the scope of their joint defense agreement and access to privileged communications that may have provided context for evaluating the statements they shared. After interviewing Cohen about these matters, we asked the president's personal counsel if he wished to provide information to us about his conversations with Cohen related to Cohen's congressional testimony about Trump Tower Moscow. The president's personal counsel declined and through his own counsel indicated that he could not disaggregate information he had he had obtained from Cohen from information he had obtained from other parties in the JDA. In view of the admonition this office gave to Cohen's counsel to withhold communications that could be covered by privilege, the president's personal counsel counsel's uncertainty about the provenance of his own knowledge the burden on a privilege holder to establish the elements to support a claim of privilege and the substance of the statements themselves. We have included relevant statements Cohen provided in this report. If the statements were to be used in a context beyond this report, further analysis could be warranted. Cohen said that in those conversations, the president's personal counsel would sometimes say that he had just been with the president Cohen recalled that the president's personal counsel told him the JDA was working well together and assured him that there was nothing there. And if they stayed on message, the investigations would come to an end soon. At that time, Cohen's legal bills were being paid by the Trump organization. This is so crazy. Let me just say that again. At that time, Cohen's legal bills were being paid by the Trump organization. And Cohen was told not to worry because the investigations would be over by summer or fall of 2017. Cohen said that the president's personal counsel also conveyed that as part of the JDA, Cohen was protected, which he would not be if he went rogue. Cohen recalled that the president's personal counsel reminded him that the president loves you and told him that if he stayed on message, the president had his back. In August 2017, Cohen began drafting a statement about Trump Tower Moscow to submit to Congress along with his document production. The final version of the statement contained several false statements about the project. First, although the Trump organization continued to pursue the project until at least June 2016, the statement said the proposal was under consideration 
at the Trump Organization from September 2015 until the end of January 2016. By the end of January 2016, I determined that the proposal was not feasible for a variety of business reasons and should not be pursued further. Based on my business determinations, the Trump Organization abandoned the proposal. Second, although Cohen and candidate Trump had discussed possible travel to Russia by Trump to pursue the venture, the statement said, despite overtures by Mr. Sater, I never considered asking Mr. Trump to travel to Russia in connection with this proposal. I told Mr. Sater that Mr. Trump would not travel to Russia unless there was a definitive agreement in place. Third, although Cohen had regularly briefed Trump on the status of the project and had numerous conversations about it, the statement said Mr. Trump was never in contact with anyone about this proposal other than me on three occasions, including signing a non-binding letter of intent in 2015. Fourth, although Cohen's outreach to Peskov in January 2016 had resulted in a lengthy phone call with a representative from the Kremlin, the statement said that Cohen did not recall any response to my email to Peskov about the proposal. Cohen's statement was circulated in advance to and edited by members of the JDA. Before the statement was finalized, early drafts contained a sentence stating, the building project led me to make limited contacts with Russian government officials. In the final version of the statement, that line was deleted. Cohen thought he was told that it was a decision of the JDA to take out that sentence, and he did not push back on the deletion. Cohen recalled that he told the president's personal counsel that he would not contest a decision of the JDA. Cohen also recalled that in drafting his statement for Congress, he spoke with the president's personal counsel about a different issue that connected candidate Trump to Russia. Cohen's efforts to set up a meeting between Trump and Putin in New York during the 2015 United Nations General Assembly. In September 2015, Cohen had suggested the meeting to Trump, who told Cohen to reach out to Putin's office about it. Cohen spoke an email with a Russian official about a possible meeting and recalled that Trump asked him multiple times for updates on the proposed meeting with Putin. When Cohen called the Russian official a second time, she told him it would not follow proper protocol for Putin to meet with Trump. And Cohen relayed that message to Trump. Cohen anticipated he might be asked questions about the proposed Trump-Putin meeting when he testified before Congress because he had talked about the potential meeting on Sean Hannity's radio show. Cohen recalled explaining to the president's personal counsel the whole story of the attempt to set up a meeting between Trump and Putin and Trump's role in it. Cohen recalled that he and the president's personal counsel talked about keeping Trump out of the narrative. And the president's personal counsel told Cohen the story was not relevant and should not be included in his statement to Congress. Cohen said that his agenda in submitting the statement to Congress with false representations about the Trump Tower Moscow project was to minimize links between the project and the president, give the false impression that the project had ended before the first presidential primaries and shut down further inquiry into Trump Tower Moscow with the aim of limiting the ongoing Russia investigations. Cohen said he wanted to protect the president and be loyal to him by not contradicting anything the president had said. Cohen recalled he was concerned 
that if he told the truth about getting a response from the Kremlin or speaking to candidate Trump about travel to Russia to pursue the project, he would contradict the message that no connection existed between Trump and Russia. And he rationalized his decision to provide false testimony because the deal never happened. He was not concerned that the story would be contradicted by individuals who knew it was false because he was sticking to the party line adhered to by the whole group. Cohen wanted the support of the president and the White House, and he believed that following the party line would help put an end to the special counsel and congressional investigations. Between August 18, 2017, when the statement was in an initial draft stage, and August 28, 2017, when the statement was submitted to Congress, phone records and phone records reflect that Cohen spoke with the president's personal counsel almost daily. On August 27, 2017, the day before Cohen submitted the statement to Congress, Cohen and the president's personal counsel had numerous contacts by phone, including calls lasting three, four, six, eleven, and eighteen minutes. Cohen recalled telling the president's personal counsel, who did not have firsthand knowledge of the project, that there was more detail on Trump Tower Moscow that was not in the statement, including that there were more communications with Russia and more communications with candidate Trump than the statement reflected. Cohen stated that the president's personal counsel responded that it was not necessary to elaborate or include those details because the project did not progress and that Cohen should keep his statement short and tight and the matter would soon come to an end. Cohen recalled that the president's personal counsel said his client appreciated Cohen, that Cohen should stay on message and not contradict the president, that there was no need to muddy the water and that it was time to move on. Cohen said he agreed because it was what he was expected to do. After Cohen later pleaded guilty, to making false statements to Congress about the Trump Tower Moscow project. This office sought to speak with the president's personal counsel about these conversations with Cohen, but counsel declined, citing potential privilege concerns. At the same time that Cohen finalized his written submission to Congress, he served as a source for a Washington Post story published on August 27, 2017, that reported in depth for the first time that the Trump organization was pursuing a plan to develop a massive Trump Tower in Moscow at the same time as candidate Trump was running for president in late 2015 and early 2016. The article reported that the project was abandoned at the end of January 2016, just before the presidential primaries began. Several people familiar with the proposal said. Cohen recalled that in speaking to the Post, he had He held to the false story that negotiations for the deal ceased in January 2016. On August 28, 2017, Cohen admitted, I'm sorry, Cohen submitted his statement about the Trump Tower Moscow project to Congress. Cohen did not recall talking to the president about the specifics of what the statement said or what Cohen would later testify to about Trump Tower Moscow. He recalled speaking to the president more generally about how he planned to stay on message in his testimony. On September 19, 2017, in anticipation of his impending testimony, Cohen orchestrated the public release of his opening remarks to Congress, which criticized the allegations in the steel material and claimed 
that the Trump Tower Moscow project was terminated in January of 2016, which occurred before the Iowa caucus and months before the very first primary. Cohen said the release of his opening remarks was intended to shape the narrative and let other people who might be witnesses know what Cohen was saying so they could follow the same message. Cohen said his decision was meant to mirror Jared Kushner's decision to release a statement in advance of Kushner's congressional testimony, which the president's personal counsel had told Cohen the president liked. Cohen recalled that on September 20th, 2017, after Cohen openings, after Cohen's opening remarks had been printed by the media, the president's personal counsel told him that the president was pleased with the Trump Tower Moscow statement that had gone out. Um, I'm going to read this footnote. Phone records show that the president's personal counsel called Cohen on the morning of September 20th, 2017, and they spoke for approximately 11 minutes and that they had two more contacts that day, one of which lasted approximately 18 minutes, according to call records of Michael Cohen. On October 24th and 25th, 2017, Cohen testified before Congress and repeated the false statements he had included in his written statement about Trump Tower Moscow. Phone records show that Cohen spoke with the president's personal counsel immediately after his testimony on both days. Phone records show that Cohen spoke with the president's personal counsel immediately after his testimony on both days. Four, the president sends messages of support to Cohen. In January 2018, the media reported that Cohen had arranged a $130,000 payment during the campaign to prevent a woman from publicly discussing an alleged sexual encounter she had with the president before he ran for office. This office did not investigate Cohen's campaign period payments to women. However, those events as described here are potentially relevant to the president's and his personal counsel's interactions with Cohen as a witness who later began to cooperate with the government. I'm going to read this footnote. The office was authorized to investigate Cohen's establishment and use of Essential Consultants LLC, which Cohen created to facilitate the $130,000 payment during the campaign based on evidence that the entity received funds from Russian-backed entities. Cohen's use of Essential Consultants to facilitate the $130,000 payment to the woman during the campaign was part of the office's referral of certain Cohen-related matters to the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York. On February 13, 2018, Cohen released a statement to news organizations that stated in a private transaction in 2016, I used my own personal funds to facilitate a payment of $130,000 to the woman. Neither the Trump organization nor the Trump campaign was a party to the transaction with the woman and neither reimbursed me for the payment, either directly or indirectly. In congressional testimony on February 27, 2019, Cohen testified that he had discussed what to say about the payment with the president and that the president had directed Cohen to say that the payment was not knowledgeable of Cohen's actions in making the payment. On February 19, 2018, the day after the New York Times wrote a detailed story attributing the payment to Cohen and describing Cohen as the president's fixer, Cohen received a text message from the president's personal counsel that stated, client says, thank you for what you do. Client says, thanks for what you do. On April 9th, 2018, 
FBI agents working with the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York executed search warrants on Cohen's home, hotel room, and office. That day, the president spoke to reporters and said that he had just heard that they broke into the office of one of my personal attorneys, a good man. The president called the searches a real disgrace and said, it's an attack on our country in a true sense. It's an attack on what we all stand for. Cohen said that after the searches, he was concerned that he was an open book, that he did not want issues arising from the payments to women to come out, and that his false statements to Congress were a big concern. A few days after the searches, the president called Cohen. According to Cohen, the president said he wanted to check in and asked if Cohen was okay. And the president encouraged Cohen to hang in there and stay strong. Cohen also... No, no, I'm going to just do a little traction like that. Cohen also recalled that following the searches, he heard from individuals. Cohen also recalled that following the searches, he heard from individuals who were in touch with the president and relayed to Cohen the president's support for him. Cohen recalled that this is redacted for personal privacy. A friend of the president's reached out to say that he was with the boss in Mar-a-Lago and the president had said he loves you and not to worry. Cohen recalled that this also is redacted for personal privacy for the Trump organization told him the boss loves you. And Cohen said that this is also redacted for personal privacy. A friend of the president's told him everyone knows the boss has your back. On or about April 17th, 2018, Cohen began speaking with an attorney, Robert Costello, who had a close relationship with Rudolph Giuliani, one of the president's personal lawyers. Costello told Cohen that he had a back channel of communication to Giuliani and that Giuliani had said the channel was crucial and must be maintained. On April 20th, 2018, the New York Times published an article about the president's relationship with and treatment of Cohen. The president responded with a series of tweets predicting that Cohen would not flip. The New York Times and a third rate reporter are going out of their way to destroy Michael Cohen and his relationship with me in the hopes that he will flip. They use non-existent sources and a drunk, drugged up loser who hates Michael, a fine person with a wonderful family. Michael is a businessman for his own account, lawyer who I have always liked and respected. Most people will flip if the government lets them out of trouble, even if it means lying or making up stories. Sorry, I don't see Michael doing that, despite the horrible witch hunt and and the dishonest media. In an email that day to Cohen, Costello wrote that he had spoken with Giuliani. Costello told Cohen that conversation was very, very positive. You are loved. They are in our corner. Sleep well tonight. You have friends in high places. Cohen said that following these messages, he believed he had the support of the White House if he continued to toe the party line. And he determined to stay on message and be part of the team. At the time, Cohen's understood that his legal fees were still being paid by the Trump organization, which he said was important to him. Cohen believed he needed the power of the president to take care of him. So he needed to defend the president and stay on message. Cohen also recalled speaking with the president's personal counsel about pardons after the searches of his home and office had occurred. At a time when the media had reported that pardon discussions were occurring at the White House, Cohen told the president's personal counsel he had been a loyal lawyer and servant. And he said 
that after the searches, he was in an uncomfortable position and wanted to know what was in it for him. According to Cohen, the president's personal counsel responded that Cohen should stay on message, that the investigation was a witch hunt, and that everything would be fine. Cohen understood based on this conversation and previous conversation about pardons with the president's personal counsel that as long as he stayed on message, he would be taken care of by the president, either through a pardon or through the investigation being shut down. On April 24, 2018, the president responded to a reporter's inquiry whether he would consider a pardon for Cohen with stupid question. On June 8, 2018, the president said he hadn't even thought about pardons for Manafort or Cohen and continued, it's far too early to be thinking about that. They haven't been convicted of anything. There's nothing to pardon. And on June 15, 2018, the president expressed sympathy for Cohen, Manafort, and Flynn in a press interview and said, I feel badly about a lot of them because I think a lot of it is very unfair. Five, the president's conduct after Cohen began cooperating with the government. On July 2nd, 2018, ABC News reported based on an exclusive interview with Cohen that Cohen strongly signaled his willingness to cooperate with special counsel Robert Mueller and federal prosecutors in the Southern District of New York. Even if that puts President Trump in jeopardy that that week, the media reported that Cohen had added an attorney to his legal team who previously had worked as a legal advisor to President Bill Clinton. Beginning on July 20th, 2018, the media reported on the existence of a recording Cohen had made of a conversation he had with candidate Trump about a payment made to a second woman who said she had an affair with Trump. On July 21st, 2018, the president responded inconceivable that the government would break into a lawyer's office early in the morning, almost unheard of, even more inconceivable that a lawyer would tape a client totally unheard of and perhaps illegal. The good news is that your favorite president did nothing wrong. On July 27th, 2018, after the media reported that Cohen was willing to inform investigators that Donald Trump Jr. told his father about the June 9th, 2016 meeting to get dirt on Hillary Clinton. The president tweeted, so the fake news doesn't waste my time with dumb questions. No, I did not know of the meeting with my son, Don Jr. Sounds to me like someone is trying to make up stories in order to get himself out of an unrelated jam. Taxi cabs, maybe? He even retained Bill and Crooked Hillary's lawyer. Gee, I wonder if they helped him make the choice. On August 21st, 2018, Cohen pleaded guilty in the Southern District of New York to eight felony charges, including two counts of campaign finance violations based on the payments he made during the final weeks of the campaign to women who said they had affairs with the president. During the plea hearing, Cohen stated that he had worked at the direction of the candidate in making those payments. The next day, the president contrasted Cohen's cooperation with Manafort's refusal to cooperate, tweeting, I feel bad, very badly for Paul Manafort and his wonderful family. Justice took a 12-year-old tax case, among other things, applied tremendous pressure on him, and unlike Michael Cohen, he refused to break. Make up stories in order to get a deal. Such respect for a brave man. On September 17, 2018, this office submitted written questions to the president that included questions about the Trump Tower Moscow project and attached Cohen's written statement 
to Congress and the letter of intent signed by the president. Among other issues, the questions asked the questions asked the president to describe the timing and substance of discussions he had with Cohen about the project, whether they discussed the potential trip to Russia and whether the president at any time directed or suggested that discussions about the Trump Moscow project should cease or whether the president was informed at any time that the project had been abandoned. On November 20th, 2018, the president submitted written responses that did not answer those questions about Trump Tower Moscow directly and did not provide any information about the timing of the candidate's discussion with Cohen about the project or whether he participated in any discussions about being about the project being abandoned or no longer pursued. Instead, the president's answer stated in relevant part, I had few conversations with Mr. Cohen on this subject. As I recall, they were brief and they were not memorable. I was not enthused about the proposal and I do not recall any discussion of travel to Russia in connection with it. I do not remember discussing it with anyone else at the Trump organization, although it is possible I do not recall being aware at the time of any communication between Mr. Cohen and Felix Sater and any Russian government official regarding the letter of intent. On November 29, 2018, Cohen pleaded guilty to making false statements to Congress based on his statements about the Trump Tower Moscow project. In a plea agreement with this office, Cohen agreed to provide truthful information regarding any and all matters as to which this office deems relevant. Later on November 29th, after Cohen's guilty plea had become public, the president spoke to reporters about the Trump Tower Moscow project saying, I decided not to do the project. I decided ultimately not to do it. There would have been nothing wrong if I did do it. If I did do it, there would have been nothing wrong. That was my business. It was an option that I decided not to do. I decided not to do it. The primary reason I was focused on running for president. I was running my business while I was campaigning. There was a good chance that I wouldn't have won, in which case I would have gone back into the business. And why should I lose lots of opportunities? The president also said that Cohen was a weak person. And by being weak, unlike other people that you watch, he is a weak person. And what he's trying to do is get a reduced sentence. So he's lying about a project that everybody knew about. The president also brought up Cohen's written submission to Congress regarding the Trump Tower Moscow project. So here's the story. Go back and look at the paper that Michael Cohen wrote before he testified in the House and or Senate. It talked about his position. The president added, even if Cohen was right, it doesn't matter because I was allowed to do whatever I wanted during the campaign. In light of the president's public statements following Cohen's guilty plea that he decided not to do the project, this office again sought information from the president about whether he participated in any discussions about the project being abandoned or no longer pursued, including when he decided not to do the project, who he spoke to about that decision and what motivated the decision. The office also again asked for the timing of the president's discussions with Cohen about Trump Tower Moscow and asked him to specify what period of the campaign he was involved in discussions concerning the project. In response, the president's personal counsel declined to provide additional information from the president and stated that the president has fully answered the questions at issue. In the weeks following Cohen's plea, an agreement to provide assistance to this office 
The president president repeatedly implied that Cohen's family members were guilty of crimes. On December 3rd, 2018, after Cohen had filed his sentencing memorandum, the president tweeted, Michael Cohen asked judge for no prison time. You mean he can do all of the terrible, unrelated to Trump things having to do with fraud, big loans, taxis, etc., and not serve a long prison term? He makes up stories to get a great and already reduced deal for himself and get his wife and father-in-law who has the money off scot-free? He lied for this outcome and should, in my opinion, serve a full and complete sentence. The rest of this paragraph has been redacted for harm to ongoing matter. On December 12, 2018, Cohen was sentenced to three years of imprisonment. The next day, the president sent a series of tweets that said, I never directed Michael Cohen to break the law. Those charges were just agreed to by him in order to embarrass the president and get a much reduced prison sentence, which he did, including the fact that his family was temporarily let off the hook. As a lawyer, Michael has great liability to me. On December 16, 2018, the president tweeted, remember, Michael Cohen only became a rat after after the FBI did something which was absolutely unthinkable and unheard of until the witch hunt was illegally started. They broke into an attorney's office. Why didn't they break into the DNC to get the server server or Crooked's office? So crazy. In January 29th, after the media reported that Cohen would provide public testimony in a congressional hearing, the president made additional public comments suggesting that Cohen's family members had committed crimes. In an interview on Fox on January 12, 2019, the president was asked whether he was worried about Cohen's testimony and responded in order to get his sentence reduced. Cohen says, I have an idea. I'll uh, tell. I'll give you some information on the president. Well, there's no information, but he should give information maybe on his father-in-law because that's the one that people want to look at. Because where does that money? That's the money in the family. And I guess... He didn't want to talk about his father-in-law. He's trying to get his sentence reduced. So it's a uh, pretty sad, you know, it's weak and it's very sad to watch a thing like that. On January 18th, 2019, the president tweeted, Kevin Cork at Fox News, don't forget Michael Cohen has already been convicted of perjury and fraud. And as recently as this week, the Wall Street Journal has suggested that he may have stolen tens of thousands of dollars. Lying to reduce his jail time. Watch father-in-law. On January 23rd, 2019, Cohen postponed his congressional testimony, testimony citing threats against his family. The next day, the president tweeted, so interesting that bad lawyer, so interesting that bad lawyer Michael Cohen, who sadly will not be testifying before Congress, is using the lawyer of crooked Hillary Clinton to represent him. Gee, how did that happen? Also in January 2019, Giuliani gave press interviews that appeared to confirm Cohen's account that the Trump Organization pursued the Trump Tower Moscow project well past January 2016. Giuliani stated that it's our understanding that discussions about the Trump Moscow project went went on through 2016. Weren't a lot of them, but there were conversations. Can't be sure of the exact date, but the president can remember having conversations with him about it. The president also remembers, yeah, probably up, could be up to as far as October or November. In an interview with the New York Times, 
Giuliani quoted the president as saying that that the discussions regarding the Trump Moscow project were going on from the day I announced to the day I won. My, how the story changed. On January 12th, 2019, Giuliani issued a statement that said, my recent statements about discussions during the 2016 campaign between Michael Cohen and candidate Donald Trump about a potential Trump Moscow project were hypothetical and not based on conversations I had with the president. Interesting. Analysis. In analyzing the president's conduct related to Cohen, the following evidence is related to the elements of obstruction of justice. A. Obstructive act. We gathered evidence of the president's conduct related to Cohen on two issues. Whether the president or others aided or participated in Cohen's false statements to Congress and whether the president took actions that would have the natural tendency to prevent Cohen from providing truthful information to the government. First, with regard to Cohen's false statements to Congress, while there is evidence described below that the president knew Cohen provided false testimony to Congress about the Trump Tower Moscow project, the evidence available to us does not establish that the president directed or aided Cohen's false testimony. Cohen said that his statements to Congress followed a party line that developed within the campaign to align with the president's public statements distancing the president from Russia. Cohen also recalled that in speaking with the president in advance of testifying, he made it clear that he would stay on message, which Cohen believed they both understood would require false testimony. But Cohen said that he and the president did not explicitly discuss whether Cohen's testimony about the Trump Tower Moscow project would be or was false. And the president did not direct him to provide false testimony. Cohen also said he did not tell the president about the specifics of his planned testimony during the time when his statement to Congress was being drafted and circulated to members of the JDA. Cohen did not speak directly to the president about the statement, but rather communicated with the president's personal counsel as corroborated by phone records showing extensive communications between Cohen and the president's personal counsel before Cohen submitted his statement And when he testified before Congress, Cohen recalled that in his discussions with the president's personal counsel on August 27, 2017, the day before Cohen's statement was submitted to Congress, Cohen said that there were more communications with Russia and more communications with candidate Trump than the statement reflected. Cohen recalled expressing some concern at that time. According to Cohen, the president's personal counsel who did not have firsthand knowledge of the project, responded by saying that there was no need to muddy the water, that it was unnecessary to include those details because the project did not take place, and that Cohen should keep his statement short and tight, not elaborate, stay on message, and not contradict the president. Cohen's recollection of the content of those conversations is consistent with direction about the substance of Cohen's draft statement that appeared to come from members of the JDA. For example, Cohen omitted any reference to his outreach to Russian government officials to set up a meeting between Trump and Putin during the United Nations General Assembly. And Cohen believed it was a decision of the JDA to delete the sentence. The building project led me to make limited contacts with Russian government officials. The president's personal counsel declined to provide us with his account 
of his conversations with Cohen. And there is no evidence available to us that indicates that the president was aware of the information Cohen provided to the president's personal counsel. The president's conversation with his personal counsel were presumptively protected by attorney-client privilege. And we did not seek to obtain the content of any such communications. The absence of evidence about the president and his counsel's conversations about the drafting of Cohen's statements, statement precluded us from assessing what, if any, role the president played. Second, we considered whether the president took actions that would have the natural tendency to prevent Cohen from providing truthful information to criminal investigators or to Congress. Before Cohen began to cooperate with the government, the president publicly and privately urged Cohen to stay on message and not flip. Cohen recalled the president's personal counsel telling him that he would be protected so long as he did not go rogue. In the days and weeks that followed the April 2018 searches of Cohen's home and office, the president told reporters that Cohen was a good man and said he was a fine person with a wonderful family who I have always liked and respected. Privately, the president told Cohen to hang in there and to stay strong. People who were close to both Cohen and the president passed messages to Cohen that the president loves you, the boss loves you, and everyone knows the boss has your back. Through the president's personal counsel, the president also had previously told Cohen, thanks for what you do, after Cohen provided information to the media about payments to women that, according to Cohen, both Cohen and the president knew were false. At that time, the Trump organization continued to pay Cohen's legal fees, which was important to Cohen. Cohen also recalled discussing the the possibility of a pardon with the president's personal counsel who told him to stay on message and everything would be fine. The president indicated in his public statements that a pardon had not been ruled out and also stated publicly that most people will flip if the government lets them out of trouble, but that he didn't see Michael doing that. After it was reported that Cohen intended to cooperate with the government, however, the president accused Cohen of making up stories in order to get himself out of an unrelated jam. Taxi cabs, maybe? Called Cohen a rat? and on multiple occasions publicly suggested that Cohen's family members had committed crimes. The evidence concerning this sequence of events could support an inference that the president used inducements in the form of positive messages in an effort to get Cohen not to cooperate and then turn to attacks and intimidation to deter the provision of information or undermine Cohen's credibility once Cohen began cooperating. B. Nexus to an official proceeding. The president's relevant conduct towards Cohen occurred when the president knew the special counsel's office, Congress, and the U.S. attorney's office for the Southern District of New York were investigating Cohen's conduct. The president acknowledged through his public statements and tweets that Cohen potentially could cooperate with the government investigations. C. Intent. In analyzing the president's intent and his actions toward Cohen, As a potential witness, there's evidence that could support the inference that the president intended to discourage Cohen from cooperating with the government because Cohen's information would shed adverse light on the president's campaign period conduct and statements. 
Cohen's false congressional testimony about the Trump Tower Moscow project was designed to minimize connections between the president and Russia and to help limit the congressional and DOJ Russia investigations, a goal that was in the president's interest as reflected by the president's own statements. During and after the campaign, the president made repeated statements that he had no business in Russia and said that there were no deals that could happen in Russia because we've stayed away. As Cohen knew, and as he recalled communicating to the president during the campaign, Cohen's pursuit of the Trump Tower Moscow project cast doubt on the accuracy or completeness of these statements. In connection with his guilty plea, Cohen admitted that he had multiple conversations with candidate Trump to give him status updates about the Trump Tower Moscow project that the conversations continued through at least June 2016 and that he discussed with Trump possible travel to Russia to pursue the project. The conversations were not offhand, according to Cohen, because the project had the potential to be so lucrative. In addition, text messages to and from Cohen and other records further established that Cohen's efforts to advance the project did not end in January 2016 and that in May and June 2016, Cohen was considering the timing for possible trips to Russia by him and Trump in connection with the project. The evidence could support an inference that the president was aware of these facts at the time of Cohen's false statements to Congress. Cohen discussed the project with the president in early 2017 following media inquiries. Cohen recalled that on September 20th, 2017, the day after he released to the public his opening remarks to Congress, which said the project was terminated in January of 2016, the president's personal counsel told him the president was pleased with what Cohen had said about Trump Tower Moscow. And after Cohen's guilty plea, the president told reporters that he had ultimately decided not to do the project, which supports the inference that he remained aware of his own involvement in the project and the period during the campaign in which the project was being pursued. The president's public remarks following Cohen's guilty plea also suggest that the president may have been concerned about what Cohen told investigators about the Trump Tower Moscow project. At the time, the president submitted written answers to questions from this office about the project and other subjects. The media had reported that Cohen was cooperating with the government, but Cohen had not yet pleaded guilty to making false statements to Congress. Accordingly, it was not publicly known what information about the project Cohen had provided to the government. In his written answers, the president did not provide details about the timing and substance of his discussions with Cohen about the project and gave no indication that he decided to no longer pursue the project. Yet, After Cohen pleaded guilty, the president publicly stated that he had personally made the decision to abandon the project. The president then declined to clarify the seeming discrepancy to our office or or answer additional questions. The content and timing of the president's provision of information about his knowledge and actions regarding the Trump Tower Moscow project is evidence that the president may have been concerned about the information that Cohen could provide as a witness. For all my children of the light, born in the sinning, but steady striving to do right. My people are warriors. All we know is to fight. Pray. They see God in everything I write here.